And when I think about house churches, and I think about my past experience with house churches, I think about the very first one that I attended. Um, I kind of just accidentally, completely, obliviously fell into being a member of a house church. Um, I had been living and fellowshipping and serving and working with this ragtag group of believers in New Orleans for almost a month when I looked up and realized, like, oh my goodness, like, I'm attending a house church. When did that happen? You see, when I first darkened the doorstep of that great antebellum house on Annunciation Ave, I was simply looking for a cheap place to live. Um, I recently moved to New Orleans, and my original housing plan fell through, and I refused to go back to my hometown in Texas, because my mom and I had probably one of the largest, biggest blowouts uh, that we've ever had around me deciding to just move to New Orleans because God called me to love and serve in the urban core there. And as she's pushing back saying, oh, Sheeta, this is unsafe. You shouldn't do this. I'm pushing back saying, I need to go. I want to go. I'm going to be, God is calling me to do it. It's going to be great. And she was like, no, like, I want you to stay here. And I honestly said to her, if I should stay, I would only be in your way. So I will go, but I know that I'll think of you every step of the way, mom. And my mom stepped, stepped back and she looked at me and she goes, child, you just did not quote Dolly Parton to me to, to, let, me, to let me make you go to New Orleans or allow me to let you go to New Orleans. And I said, yes, I did. And we started laughing and she eventually gave me her blessing to go. So I pulled out of my mom's driveway, blasting, I will always love you, saying, I, I, I will always love you, mom. And she's like, go child, you are a hot mess. <laughs> and so I'm in New Orleans, and my housing is falling through, and I need a place to live, and I'm not gonna go back to my mom, because one does not go back home after a big blowout, after a big striking out on your own young adult glory. So my friend tells me that there's this free room at this big house on Annunciation Street. Um, and the house was run by a Mennonite and a hippie. And all I had to do was just go and live and be among those people in that house. And so I should just go get the free room. And so I said, yes, I will. And I got in my car, blasting Dolly Parton's 9 to 5 onto my new home. And so I get to this house, and I start to live with these women. And it didn't take a month for me to recognize what a unique and quirky new home I found for myself. There were at least seven bedrooms in the Annunciation House, a great room which served as a prayer chapel throughout the week, and then our sanctuary for two, yes, two, Sunday worship gatherings on Sundays. One in the morning, and then you went home and took your nap, and then you came back at night. We'd pull up long tables for the great room after worship and have a communal meal together that was planned and cooked by Judy, the Mennonite woman in the leadership pair. She viewed her home and this blessing of having this great large home with all these bedrooms and all this space as her opportunity to help the church flourish. And so she planned meals and she cleaned and she paid attention to everybody's needs as if she was the house mother. And so after our worship time together, after our, our worship time together and then our meal together, eventually somebody would break out their guitar or their djembe or a flute or for really real one-timey guys bagpipes <laughs> at the behest of Jewel, who was the hippie who ran the house. Jewel loved uh, these impromptu worship gatherings. She loved jam sessions. She loved leading us in these imaginative prayer exercises. And so Jewel was always one of those people that was pointing us back to how present God is with us in our home. 
Jewel was, uh, had a face that was incredibly implausible, and she gave me the best advice about anxiety that I've ever received. One day I was really stressed out because I couldn't find my driver's license, because you always lose. Every young adult has to lose their driver's license at least once in their life. It's a rite of passage. So I couldn't find my license, and I'm freaking out, and she said, oh, Sheeta, dude, like, calm down, because when you look back at today, when you lost your driver's license, you're going to be like, why was I so upset? It's not that big of a deal. Five years from now, you're going to have other things to worry about. So you know what I would do? I would start practicing giving my anxiety to Jesus right now so that you can be prepared for tomorrow's frustrations. And so she was like, just trust Jesus. He knows where your car, where your driver's license is. It was under my car seat, as they always are. But we read the Bible together, we gardened, we danced, we ate, we cleaned, we prayed, we worshiped, and we ate. This cannot be overly stated. We were a community that was led, that you would imagine that it would be, that was led by two women who loved Jesus so much, but brought their full selves. One with a Mennonite background, and one with a very hippie Southern California background. And to this day, I cannot remember anything about that church other than the women who led that community. Now, Judy was married. Her husband, Irby, was the official pastor of our house church, but he was rarely in the house. He was almost always at the homeless shelter, caring for the men there, scoping out new potential members, house, housemates for us. And he would come and he would preach and he would lead us on Sundays, but the heartbeat of the house was led by the women of that home. The, the, it was Jewel who was always pointing us back to God's presence and Judy who made it a safe place for us to live. But then there was also a third woman, an unlikely leader in this house. Her name was Burdell. Burdell was a recovering addict in her mid-40s, but don't you dare tell her I told you that. <laughs> Burdell is a forever will be, not a day over 30, and if anybody suggests otherwise, she will cut you. Burdell was the protector of our home. She was a local who knew the streets and the people well. She'd sit on our stoop and she'd pray. And if drug dealers or gang members hovered by the corner where our house sat, she'd yell at them to move it along. Stay out of our backyard. And if you can leave your beef on the streets, you can come inside for some food. Oh my gosh, there was always food cooking at the Annunciation House. And then enters me. The accidental housemate who kind of just fell into living in this community, who really was just there for a free room, who quotes Dolly Parton and Beyonce a bit too much. I move in and I'm with Judy one day as we're baking bread and, she, and she's asking me, what, what does God have for you? Like, what, what is your dream for the future? Like, what, do you, what makes you come alive? This is a question Judy asks all the time, a question that I find myself asking all the time too. What makes you come alive? And I said, you know, I really love the Bible, and I think one of these days I might teach, like I might be a preacher. And so that night, she called me to the kitchen table, and she sat me down, and she put a pen in my hand, and a journal, and a Bible, and she said, there's fire in your bones, so she had to write it out. And it was at Judy's table I wrote my very first sermon. So four very different women are now leaders in this church because Judy would tell Irby, oh, she has something to share, and I would get up and share it on these Sunday evening gatherings. Jewel, the music-loving hippie from Southern California who inspired us to face our fears head on because Jesus was right with us. Burdell, the strength and protection of our little house church who modeled in her own way the sacrificial love of Jesus by putting her body between the house and the streets every day. 
Judy, the nurturer and caregiver who took us under her wing like a mother. Judy did what, best, what all the best mothers do, train her eyes to see the beauty in people and her surroundings, and then be brave enough to call it out every single day for the people who live under her roof. And me, the preacher who's not afraid of big audacious changes and melodramatic exits and quotes pop culture, and who, because of Annunciation House, pays attention to the energy of the room. Where is the fire and how can I stoke it has become my heart's mantra. Four very different women, and yet the church changed our lives. It created a space for us to be our full, whole selves in the for the glory of God and for the good of our community. The house on Annunciation Street gave me a vision for the church at its best. And when we look at our passage today in Romans 16, Paul gives us a vision for the church at its best by introducing us to his beloved friends and fellow ministers. Some men, but many women. In fact, just this past week, TC made this graphic for us that shows us kind of the breakdown of the names of the people who are in leadership in Rome, in the church at Rome. And if you look and see just over here, the 10 leaders in Romans that are mentioned in Romans 16, 1 through 16, which is our text for today, we see that 70% of those 10 leaders are women. When we look at our passage today, I see a very similar ragtag group of believers in house churches led by women in various capacities. Some were teachers, some caregivers, some nurturers, some providers, all celebrated by Paul in his collection of greetings for their extraordinary service to the church in Rome. So we're going to look at four of the ten, uh, the, four of the women who are mentioned in Romans. First, we're going to meet Paul, uh, Sister Phoebe. In Romans 6, 1 through 2, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centuria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So Phoebe is the very first woman that Paul mentions in Romans 16, and there are several good reasons for this. First, Paul tells us that Phoebe is a deacon, not as I have learned, as I got used to saying in the South, a deaconess. She was a deacon in the church, which was important uh, in Centuria, which was an important port, port city in Corinth. This word deacon means servant, and it's a word that Paul used for himself and for other leaders in this fledgling Jesus movement. Notice that unlike several other women mentioned in Paul's greetings, which we're going to come to, Paul does not mention Phoebe's husband. And so we don't know for certain if she was single or possibly a widow. But I think that's interesting that Paul thought so highly of Phoebe and wanted to acknowledge that this was a part of her, her, her life, that she was not married, to just mention her name, just Phoebe. Another good reason Paul starts with Phoebe is because she is a benefactor of Paul's. And that basically means that Phoebe was Paul's patron. She funded his ministry in a significant way. This was a woman who was generous with her resources. This was a woman who knew how to, make, how to have resources. How to, how to be entrepreneurial and how to make money. She possibly was a businesswoman or even a socialite. But then there's another reason why Paul commends Phoebe to the church in Rome. And his letter, she is his letter's courier, which means she didn't just like keep the letter safe and her like really pretty satchel and just make sure it got to the right person to read it. She actually took it with her and she read it amongst the, leader, amongst the house churches. She would read it and answer questions. Some say she would even read it dramatically, making eye contact with the people whom Paul was speaking. And it's no exaggeration to say that Phoebe was possibly the first commentator of Romans. 
Scott McKnight in his book, Reading Romans Backwards, says, Letters in Paul's world, world, letters in Paul's world were embodied in scripted presence of the letter writer, in this case, Paul. He chooses a woman to embody his letter, which means the face of Paul is experienced in the face of Phoebe. Before anyone hears the letter, they encounter the body of Phoebe in their midst. Writers like Paul didn't hand letters over to schmucks to stumble their way through the letters. He and his co-workers mentored the readers so that they could read the letter in a way that made Paul seem presence, present and his lived theology compelling. So how was it read? Phoebe did just sit and stand up there and read the letter and say, all right guys, do with this what you will. No, she embodied it. She used her voice. She stood there and she read it in such a way that drew her audience in. McKnight goes on to say that the standard elements of reading was like a performance with gestures at the right time and the right segment for the audience. When Phoebe would say, would speak to the strong or the weak, she would look at them in their eyes. The inflection of her voice would change, maybe pastoral, or sometimes admonishing, or softening, or extorting. Acting out the specific elements of the letter, pausing and speeding up when needed, making eye contact at crucial points. Phoebe used her voice and her body to, to share the gospel, to share the kingdom, to read the words of Paul. And when I think about Phoebe's leadership, I think about a value here at our church that is so important, is that we want to be a multi-voice community. We want to be a community that trusts the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and makes space for you to share how that's, how that's lived out in you, what you're learning, to take your experience and your voice inflection and your presence and share the good news of, of Christ's work in your life. I love that TC is the kind of pastor that is always looking for people to hear their stories and make space for their stories to be shared. I love that I'm on a teaching team with Emily and Durr and, and TC, where we all get to share our own voices and use our own stories and connect it to scripture and then spend our time with you starting a conversation about how can we live into this well. And we see this in Phoebe's leadership. The next leader we look at is Priscilla. So Paul asks us, asks uh, them to greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Now Phoebe wasn't the only important female leader. Paul mentioned straight away in Romans 16. He goes directly to greet Priscilla and Aquila, a couple whom Paul calls his fellow workers for Christ Jesus. This means that they were both leaders. So there is a couple who both of them led in their house church. Um, they are mentioned in, in, in the book of Acts. But this is interesting. Every time Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, Priscilla is always mentioned first. This husband and wife ministry team served together and modeled mutuality. They were also teachers. Acts 18, 26 says that they were the ones who explained to Apollos the way of God more adequately. So they sat down with Apollos and said, you know, what you're teaching is kind of, you're kind of right. There are a few things that you're missing out. Here's some nuances. Here's something that you need to know so that you can be a better teacher of the gospel of Jesus. Apollos was an Alexandrian Jewish apostle who only knew of John's baptism. And so this couple spent their time teaching him sound theology. They weren't just Bible nerds either. When they were expelled from Rome by the decree of the Roman Empire Claudius, 
Um, and they were told that all Jews had to leave. They traveled and planted churches with Paul in Corinth and Ephesus. Paul says of this couple, they risked their necks for me. And not only I, but the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And it was also in Priscilla's home that, the, that Paul's letter was maybe first likely read by Phoebe. And as a presider over the gathering of the disciples that met her home, Priscilla likely served in the role of a pastor. But there's one more really cool detail about Priscilla that I just find so fascinating, which feels really applicable to our church that, that wants to be a multicultural church. Scott McKnight writes that a few scholars consider Aquila a Jewish freeman, and that in this case, we may have had a high-status Roman woman married to a former slave. So in their very marriage, they had to learn how to live multiculturally with each other for the sake of the kingdom. And they modeled that when they led, that the church of God is a diverse church. The community of God values the culture and the experience of every single person in the room. And so when we say we want to be a multicultural church, that is what we're saying, is that we want to make space for your culture and your experience to be valued and listened to in this room. We want to be curious enough to learn more. Jewel, the hippie, uh, was a, is a white woman from Southern California, and she fell in love with a black man from the heart of New Orleans. And as she and I were sitting together, we began contemplating the very real reality that we were going to be in interracial marriages. I was going to marry TC, and she was going to marry Corey. And I was telling her of all of my fears that come from my background of coming, coming of age in the South and realizing that I was probably going to marry a, a, a white man or a, not a black man and how I was going to have to deal with all of the hardness of being in interracial marriage. And so I'm telling Jewel this, and she said, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot too. And yeah, it's going to be hard. But I'm choosing this hard because I love Corey so much. And that is why we want to be a multicultural church. We are choosing the hard of multicultural living together because we love each other so much. We're willing to be uncomfortable. We're willing to not listen and not make space for a majority culture, but to say we want our cultures to combine. We want to practice cultural hybridity in this church because we love each other so much. And so in Priscilla, we see all of these great leadership qualities, but we also see an encouragement that a healthy church is a multicultural church. So the next Paul goes on to say, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. And I just want to stop there. We don't have it on the slide, but I just love that Paul is like, everything that everybody does matters. Greet Mary, who helped. And I don't know if Mary is one of these people who kind of helped from the, from, in the background, from the sidelines, who didn't want to draw a whole lot of attention to herself. But Paul's like, no, 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 no. I see you. Make sure to greet Mary. The next woman we're going to look at is Junia. And Paul says of Junia, that he, he would like the church to greet Adronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles as they were in Christ before I was. So Phoebe and Priscilla are certainly impressive leaders, and I love that Mary helped out. But I really am so interested in the story of Junia. Junia was mentioned alongside her husband, Adronicus, but unlike Priscilla and Aquila, Paul makes mention of them as kinsmen, which probably means that they are fellow Jews or that they were relatives. These two, along with Paul, have been persecuted for the gospel and thrown into prison. And this wasn't uncommon. If you traveled with Paul and you preached the gospel, then you were probably going to end up in jail. 
But what Paul writes next was astonishing. Adronicus and Junior are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. And if you've grown up like me in an evangelical conservative context, you've likely been taught that women cannot be apostles. And this sort of bias is actually what uh, led to some translators to mistranslate Junia into Junius, turning her from a woman into a man. But recent scholarship has shown that this verse indeed states that Junia is a female apostle. It states that her and her husband were in Christ before Paul was. And this could mean that they were maybe even they may be even eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Could they have been among the 500 people who saw Jesus after his resurrection? Junia's apostleship has been covered, um, has been covered by so many years of like shameful commentary because of our cultural based biases and how they've influenced the translation of the New Testament. But this recovery, this realization that a woman was an apostle, that possibly a woman was one of the first eyewitnesses of Jesus after his resurrection, means something to us. The recovery of that allows us to want to look deeper, to push past our biases, to spend time in scripture and have good scholarship, because that unlocks a powerful truth about God's true heart for equity in our church. And last, we're gonna look at Rufus and his mother. I love this so much. Romans 16, 13 says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who have been a mother to me too. This last woman uh, is so dear to me, Rufus's mother, because she modeled something that I think we do uniquely well here at Roots. We are a family church that loves each other as family. I want to highlight this because this verse is so tender and revealing about what God's desire is for his churches. In verse 13, Paul asks his friend Rufus to be greeted, but not only him, to also greet Rufus's mother because she had been a mother to me too. This is a powerful illustration of the way baptism and the Holy Spirit make people who would have not otherwise cared about each other, would not otherwise been in relationship with each other, spiritual family. Amen. And we care about what each other needs to thrive. So, four very different women in the church at Rome, and yet every single one of them changed lives. And what I love about the women Paul highlights in his greetings is that each woman lived fully into her gifts. And so today, usually when we talk about women in the church, what I love about this full spectrum of women that we see in these greetings is that in our church, we usually talk about women in leadership from, in two kind of spectrums. One, if you're a woman, then it is your calling to stay at home and to love your family and your home and your children are, are your primary ministry. And so, because Paul does not permit a woman to teach and lead, the spaces that you have, that you can teach and lead, are the domestic spaces. And so we, usually, so we sometimes hear women in leadership in this context. Sometimes we hear women in leadership in a completely other context that says, no, any woman who desires to stay at home and love her home and care for her home are caught under some sort of oppressive, uh, are caught under some kind of oppression. And so we need to release her. Get that woman a seminary. Get her, uh, get her ordained stat. And so what has broken my heart is that the church does not have space for the nuance of all the different ways that our femininity can be expressed. And I love that the women that, that Paul highlights in Rome, Romans are women who express their femininity in so many different ways. They're entrepreneurs, they're messengers, they're preachers, they're teachers, they're mothers, they're caregivers, they're helpers from the sidelines or maybe behind the scenes, and they're faithful wives. All of these women reflect 
the beauty of, of femininity in the church. All these women matter to the church. Women like, like the author Walt Whitman says, contain multitudes and a healthy church makes space for all of them, for, for them to live out their giftedness and to live out that multitude in a safe and welcoming environment. So, four women and three values of our church. That we want to be a multi-ethnic church, we want to be a multi-voice church, and we want to be multi-age. Now, I think of the interesting conversations between Priscilla and Aquila must have had around their cultural differences and class and maybe how the example of Christ sacrificially loving others inspired them to embrace this comfort. This is the beauty of multi-ethnic worship. I think of the little girl sitting in the audience as Phoebe is reading and interpreting and, and acting out Paul's letters and I wonder if they imagine that someday maybe they'd be able to stand in a room full of men and women and give impassioned readings about Christ and his kingdom too. I wonder if the spirit captured the imagination of other women looking at, at, at Phoebe and trust that the Holy Spirit will give them the ability to use their voices in the worship gathering as well. I think about Rufus and his mother and how they created a spiritual family for Paul himself. And that the whole goal of being a multi-age church is we believe that every person at every age has something to offer the church. And we want to nurture them in that, whether they are six or 60. This is what the church is. We love and care for, other, for those around us as if they are our own. So this is God's dream for us, misfits. That whatever we have to offer can be offered here in this safe space. That you know you belong, that you can express the fullness of your culture and use your voice and be cared for as if you're a, a beloved, dear child. So I'm grateful to the women who led the house church in Rome. And I'll never forget the women who led Annunciation House in New Orleans. And today I sit in awe of this church and the strong women who call it their own and the confident men who celebrate us every single day. So carry on, misfits, carry on. And as Dolly says, I, E-I, E-I will always love you. <laughs> Amen. <laughs>